If you would open a Bible to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. As Taryn has mentioned, this is a special service that we do uh, every fifth Sunday, which happens about once a quarter, in which we focus our attention on the Lord's Supper. And so our service is structured a little bit differently this morning. And I appreciate so much the things that have already been done and said uh, to prepare our minds for partaking of the Lord's Supper. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 14, Luke 22 and verse 14, the text says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. In this text, Jesus is eating the Passover with his disciples. This is the feast that commemorates Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And specifically, to keep the Passover, they would slaughter the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house and the lentils. And they would roast the lamb and eat it with wine and with unleavened bread. And God instructs them as he implements the Passover to eat it with their staff in their hand, ready to go, because that night when God slew the firstborn in Egypt, they were prepared to be led out and delivered from Egypt. And so Israel kept the Passover, and Jesus, with his apostles, keeps the Passover. But he says something interesting in verse 19 As they eat the Passover, he says, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of the deliverance from Egypt. No, he doesn't say it, does he? He does not say, as you eat this bread, as you drink this wine, you need to do it in remembrance of the Passover, in remembrance of the 10th plague. He says, you do this in remembrance of me. He also says, that he will not eat and drink with them again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says that in verse 16 and again in verse 18. So you have Jesus telling them, remember, and yet he also tells them, anticipate. There is something to look forward to, and I will eat this again with you in the kingdom of God. Jesus radically changes the Passover meal in this moment. He tells them not to remember Egyptian slavery, but to remember him. And he gives radical meanings to these elements. He says, this bread, this unleavened bread, is my offered body. This wine is my spilled blood. All of this is about a new covenant that is about to be ratified by the blood I'm going to shed for you. This is the moment when everything changed. When it changed for the world and when it changed for you and me. And Jesus says, eat this meal and remember me. All of the accounts that we have of the Last Supper have a phrase like what Jesus says in Luke's account here that has something to do with what will come. I will not eat of it from now on until the kingdom comes 
or in Matthew's account, until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that phrase has perplexed some. I have heard some brothers try to explain that phrase as Jesus saying, he won't partake of it until he partakes of it with us and our assemblies in the church. And since the church is in a sense the manifestation of the kingdom of God, then that's what Jesus meant, that when we partake, Jesus partakes. But I don't believe that's what he means. I believe that what Jesus, and I'll explain why in a moment, I believe that what Jesus means when he says this in verse 16, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, is that he is talking about when he will return, the second coming of Christ. And he is teaching us when we partake of this meal, we partake remembering and anticipating. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul talks to the church at Corinth, or I guess he writes to them, the church in Corinth, about the difficulties they were having with the Lord's Supper, he takes them back to this account of the Last Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, Paul takes us back to that day when Jesus instituted the supper. But he adds in verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you do it in remembrance but you do it and proclaim it until he comes. You remember and you anticipate. We have just sung a song that connects those two ideas in a beautiful way. It was so beautiful, I thought, I have to preach about it. The verse, the third verse of the song we just sung says, And thus that dark betrayal night, the night that we've been reading about when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, with the last advent... That's not a term we use very often. The last advent is the time when Jesus comes back. The final time when Jesus comes. And he says, the betrayal night and the last advent, we unite by one bright chain of loving right. And that's what I want to talk about for just a few minutes this morning. We look back and we look forward. And in between those two events stands you and me. We look back and and yet we anticipate. And I want us to think about what we remember and what we participate. I love the image of a bright chain of loving right because it says that what links those two events together is our consistent remembrance and our observance that we are both remembering what happened because we haven't forgotten and we're keeping vigil for what's yet to happen. And so I picked a picture of candles to say, in a sense, we keep the flame alive as we await the return of Jesus. So first of all, we remember. Do this in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of past deliverances. He does not talk about the Egyptian exodus. He does not talk about the restoration from Babylonian captivity. All the things that God had done for Israel, he does not mention those. Don't do it in remembrance of those. He does not talk about personal deliverances. You know, there are times in all of our lives where we can say, you know what? Things were really bad, and God helped me. God blessed me. God saved me. He does not say, remember what God's done for you specifically. He says, remember me. Those things are all appropriate, but when we take the Lord's Supper, 
We remember Jesus. We remember his body, his blood, his sacrifice. Have you ever wondered what the apostles remembered when they took the Lord's Supper? What kind of conversations they had? What kind of talks they would give? I wonder what they thought about. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder if they told the story we just read about how Jesus... We're just sitting here having the Passover. We'd done it before. We had done it all our lives. We had done it with Jesus before. And yet somehow this night was different. I wonder if they talked about how Jesus said, Some, someone here is going to betray me. And how they began to say, is it me? Is it me? And then even saying, hey, John, figure out who it is. I wonder if they told those stories. I wonder if they told what they did that night instead of following Jesus. I wonder if they told how they even got a little closer to the cross or if they were unwilling to even be there. But one thing is for sure. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, the focus is not on the meal. The focus is on Jesus. Remember Jesus. So we can take the meal and eat the bread and drink the fruit of the vine But if we don't remember Jesus, we're just having a snack. Jesus says, remember me. That's the point. There is a power in ritual. The word that we're using here is the word right, loving right, which is another word for ritual. Ritual helps to focus our attention on something. It calls us back to what matters. So while I'm always thankful to be an American... There is a power in having July 4th or having Memorial Day and say this is a day that's set aside to focus on and remember the things that you already know you should remember. Something about ritual calls our attention to it. And I believe that's the reason God designed rituals for his people. I want you to go with me back to the book of Deuteronomy. Leave your marker here. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians 11 in just a minute. But let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 26. I want you to look at a ritual with me and you'll see my point. How ritual can be a blessing to us to help us remember things that we tend to forget and need to remember. Deuteronomy 26, beginning in verse 1. Deuteronomy 26, verse 1. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. 
So you get the idea of the ritual. Whenever you start to bring in the crop, you take the first fruits of the crop and you put them in a basket and you take it to the priest and you begin to recite this. And he talks about a wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down to Egypt and he became a great nation and they became enslaved and yet God saved them out of that land. And now God has brought us into this land. And then this is important because this is where I fit in. Now I have the fruit of the land the physical fulfillment of the promises of God. This is where my part in the story comes in. There is power in ritual. Every harvest, you bring the harvest before the Lord and you remember that what a harvest means is that God keeps His promises. What the harvest means is that God did this a long time ago and now God continues to do it for me. It is connected with remembrance. It roots us in our history and in God's story. And it says, this is something I need to be grateful for. And so it is with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is something that reminds us. It is regular. We partake when we gather together on the first day of the week. It is connected with remembrance. These are the things that have been done for us. These are the stories that precede us. And now here is where I fit into the story. I stand between God's great salvation and the consummation of his plan that's yet to come. I remember and I anticipate. So I stand saved and cleansed and I become grateful. That's what ritual does for me. So I encourage you as we partake this morning to remember. Remember the remarkable, sinless man who willingly went to the cross for you. And whatever it is in the story of Jesus that draws your heart to him, remember it. Remember the shame and the humiliation that he suffered that was completely undeserved. Remember the injustice and the mocking and the pain. Remember the faithfulness to God that he exhibits. Remember, Father, forgive them. It might also help if we remember what prompted this great act, the things that I have done that created such a need for salvation, that God was moved to act for me. Because in that way, I can also see where I fit into the story. This is my body, Jesus says, which is broken for you. This cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. So we remember and we also anticipate. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians 11 and verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Or as Jesus says, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We proclaim the Lord's death by remembering. When we remember, we say, this still matters to me. I still believe. This still is true, and I will continue to proclaim it and observe it and remember it until he comes back. But the reason I believe that Jesus' statements about partaking it new with you in the kingdom of God are not talking about what we do now, but talking about a future time is because of the way Jesus talks about that in the kingdom of God in other places. Specifically, this is Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, where Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. 
So he describes a time when many will come and they will eat. They will recline at table. So there is a meal, a feast, in which not only are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there, but many more who from east and west, that's probably talking about Gentiles, people who have come to God from other places, are going to sit down in the kingdom of God. That meal, that idea of a banquet, is an old idea from the prophets. We often call it the messianic banquet, the time when the Messiah is going to usher in a time of abundance and blessings that is best described as a great feast. Everybody likes a great feast, and so it is an indicator of the blessing of God that we eat as a result of God's abundance that he has given to us. And I believe that's what Jesus is referring to. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25 is a good example of this imagery in the Old Testament. And I'll show you a few more examples after we read here. So in Isaiah 25, this is a blessing and a salvation that comes after a judgment from Isaiah 24, where God acts in a new way and replaces that judgment with blessing. Isaiah 25 and verse 6, On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So you see the blessing of God. And the blessing has to do with swallowing up death, ending judgment. We have experienced his salvation. But perhaps the most powerful image is that idea there in verse 6 of a feast. That we eat and we partake of the great blessing of God, the abundance of God. In Isaiah 55, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You see, we're not necessarily talking about physical food here, but about the blessings of God that he's offering. Even though they are rich, he offers them for free, even to those who have no money. In Joel chapter 2, the threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who dwelt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Part of the messianic blessing is the idea of abundance. In Jeremiah 31, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So Jesus takes that picture and talks about many people coming from all over to sit down at the table of God, in the kingdom of God, with the great men and women of God, and enjoying God's blessing. So Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a marriage feast 
in which all people are invited, but many make excuses and decide not to come. And the crowning picture of Revelation, the book of Revelation, is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where God's people are invited to sup with Him. So why do I go into all of that? Because it means when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are anticipating a greater meal to come when Jesus returns. We sung that in our song. Now we anticipate the feast for which we wait. We await his return. We proclaim his death until he comes. We have been invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb, but the bridegroom is delayed, and so we keep watch for him. We wait, and we anticipate that time. In a sense, we sit around a table with an empty place. Jesus is not here with us, not yet. Now, in a sense, for sure. And in a sense, we commune with him. That is certainly true. But there is another sense, and I think this is the powerful sense of these passages, in which until Jesus comes back, we simply anticipate the fullness of what we now experience in small measure. And so, that dark betrayal night with the last advent, we unite by one bright chain of loving right until he comes. I love that image. I picture it like beacons, especially if you've ever seen one of the Lord of the Rings movies where they light the beacons on the mountains. Week after week, year after year, place after place, we keep the lights on for Jesus. All over the world, people right now are doing what we are about to do, remembering we have not forgotten. We still believe. We still wait. And so we keep his place open for the time, a ritual, which means it has tremendous power. It reminds us of what we believe and what that belief requires, and it reminds us of what's important and who we are and the one we're waiting for. But the Lord's Supper is a ritual, which means it also holds certain dangers. It holds the danger of us losing the meaning because we do it and we can do it without thinking. And we can do it so often that it becomes second nature. We can do it in a casual and thoughtless and undiscerning way. So my encouragement to you, as we partake, remember and anticipate. At this time, we'll ask the men to come forward to lead the Bible to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. When I sat down, Noah asked me, do you have another sermon? <laughs> and I said, I have a baby sermon. And he said, oh, I like the way that sounds, a baby sermon. <laughs> Maybe we need more baby sermons, right? Thank you so much for uh, participating with us. And uh, I think this has just been a great morning. And uh, I hope that this has been beneficial to you to help you as you partake and uh, think about these things of God. I want to say a word of welcome to those who are visiting with us. We're always glad that we have visitors. We're so blessed in that a lot of people have usually are coming and making the choice to be here and worship with us, and we're always so excited about that. We want you to know we want to get to know you. We want to help you in any way that we can, but we're thankful that you're here. I came across this passage as I was studying in preparation for the lesson that I just delivered, and I thought it would be a good way for us to end our service and something to think about as we offer the invitation of the Lord. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 15, Luke 14 and verse 15, when those, one of those who were reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, 
Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of, these men, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So as I was studying about that idea of a banquet, the messianic banquet, came across this passage. The premise is very simple. There is a feast. Everyone's invited. It's free. You can come. And yet people begin to make excuses why they don't want to come. And the thing about excuses in this story is that the excuses, they sound reasonable to the person giving them, and they sound pretty lame to everybody else. So it might seem like I have a good excuse for why I'm not going to come, but when other people hear it, they don't feel the same way. I think that what is powerful about this is that when we step back from situations like this, where there is an invitation and excuses are made, we really see it for what it is. When we excuse ourselves from something like this, it is viewed as a rejection. It is not simply, oh, we had a reason. It is a rejection and not a reason. And those excuses anger God. It says specifically in verse 21 that the master of the house became angry. And you can see that in that anger and frustration, he then says, none of those men who were invited will come. If they didn't feel they, I was worthy of their presence, then they're not going to be invited and allowed. So how do we take that passage? I, I think what is important here is that we see that God has expectations for us and even invitations to great blessings, but that sometimes we choose not to do what God says and not to receive what God offers. And when we make those choices, we usually think we have good reasons. And I want us to use this story as an opportunity to examine our reasons and see if they're as flimsy as the things you read here. I've, I've married a wife, so if for some reason we can't eat. Or I've got some oxen and I'm not sure if they'll walk. Okay, so my question is, what excuses are you making? Are you making excuses to not become a Christian at all? That there's something that's standing in your way. Very often I've heard people say things like, someday when I get everything together, then I'll become a Christian. Not realizing that Christians don't have everything together either. That's not a requirement. In fact, we come to Jesus because we don't have it together. And he helps us to get some things together. You making excuses to not address a serious problem of sin in your life? We all have those areas that are difficult for us. Sometimes those things get out of control. We know what we need to do, and yet we don't do it. Are we making excuses? Is there a good reason in your mind why you haven't addressed something that you know needs addressing in your own life? Are you making excuses to not go to someone and make something right? You know you've got a problem with somebody. You know they've got a problem with you. 
but for some reason, you know, you're just, it just wouldn't work. They're just not reasonable. I just think it's their responsibility to come to me. Whatever it may be, there's some excuse that says, for some reason, I don't have to do what Jesus clearly tells me to do, to go to my brother and to be reconciled. Are there excuses you're making to not forgive something that's been done to you? Are there excuses you're making to not help someone that you know needs help? Where are those excuses in your life? I'm sure that you've got good reasons. I'm sure they sound good. My concern is that they may not sound that way to God. And our excuses anger God. God only seems to hear the rejection. I'm not saying that there are never times when there are legitimate reasons for us to have difficulty with certain aspects of serving God. I understand that. I believe God understands that too. I am saying that at some point, the excuses are simply rejection. They're simply inaction. They're simply disobedience. And my encouragement is let's just put those things aside and obey God. If that's something you need to do right now and let this congregation know about it, use this time. If that's something you need to work on in the days and weeks to come, Let's get started on it. Let's quit making excuses and obey God. Is there something you need to do this morning? Do you need to be baptized into Christ? Do you need to confess sin before this group? Is there anything you need? Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.